The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 6th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This, here, now, earlier today, was Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, after being asked about a Democratic plan to tie Harvey relief funding to the debt ceiling vote, a vote that, quite frankly, needs to happen. I think that's ridiculous and disgraceful that they want to pl- play politics with the debt ceiling. At this moment, I think what, 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 those, what the leaders you just described proposed is, is unworkable. To which Donald Trump said hours later, actually it works for me. Here he is aboard Air Force One explaining why he signed on to the Pelosi-Schumer plan that Ryan had just called ridiculous. We had a very good meeting with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Uh, We agreed to a uh, three-month extension on debt ceiling, which they consider to be sacred, very important. Always will agree on debt ceiling uh, automatically because of the importance of it. Okay, there are a bunch of guys in the Freedom Caucus who do not agree with always agreeing, but that's okay. You did blast those guys after the health care vote, but then you praised them. Now you seem to be sidelining them, but you also do need them on immigration and the border wall. Did I say it before? Okay. So what does it mean? What does it all mean? Does it mean bipartisanship is alive? Woohoo! Or maybe that Trump really is pissed off at Ryan and McConnell, not just, you know, Twitter pissed off. Or here's my theory. Trump took the short term over the long term. The choice wasn't really over Harvey relief. Harvey relief was going to happen. Like I said, the debt ceiling was also going to happen. You got to raise it. The question was, do we raise the debt ceiling for years, a couple of years uh, through 2018, or do we do it for three months and another three months, then maybe another year? And every time they take one of these debt ceiling votes, the Republicans just hate it. It makes it look like they keep over and over and over again indulging tax and spend liberals. But you got to do it. You got to raise the debt ceiling. If you're an adult, if you're an adult who's not into, you know, the U.S. government defaulting and having terrible credit and all that, you got to do it. So why should this matter to you? That's the question, right? I think it's interesting. It does show the dysfunction of D.C. because there really are so few examples of that. What a ridiculous ritual this debt ceiling thing is. It's like you have a beat up old car, the kind that you have to like get rolling down a hill when you when you turn on the ignition and don't worry, don't worry, it still works. But every day you have to do that. And after a while, you're just like, can't we just get a new Ford Fiesta, dad? And dad's like, no, that would be financially irresponsible. So we got this old beat up Oldsmobile Omega that we have to push to the top of the hill and then somehow push down. So that's what this debt ceiling is, or the vote, constantly having the vote. It's just this laborious ritual where the better option is quite clearly out there, but for political reasons, we can't bring ourselves to take it. Fantastic. Now, this vote, this Harvey and debt ceiling relief vote where Trump sided with the Democrats, it's interesting because it might shape the ongoing dynamic between Congress and the White House. Here is a quote from the PM Politico playbook, quote, every Republican leadership aide we've spoken to disagrees with this strategy and thinks the president got rolled. Again, I'll say it. Okay. The president will say it shows he's practical. It shows he's willing to be bipartisan. But the through line with so many of his decisions has not been solutions-oriented versus doctrinaire. It hasn't been willing to piss off Republicans versus willing to side with Democrats if they had a better deal. It's been that Trump thinks short-term instead of long-term, and nothing today changes that assessment. On the show today, I turn to sport in the spiel, as sports 
themselves turn to intrigue and subterfuge and also Ponzi schemes and pantslessness. But first, did I mention pantslessness? How about pantedness? But tight, tight trousers or pantedness as in heavy breathing sounds. And it's all set to a pulsing backbeat. We speak of the devil's music, rock and roll and the making or at least conjuring of the two backed beast, sex and music. With a great fan of both, I will say it, and Powers. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. A wop bop a loo bop a wop bam boom that says it all but it actually doesn't say it all because the lyrics to Tutti Fruity once contained the phrase good booty since sanitized to some reference to Rudy but of course good booty is at the center of Lil Richard's appeal in fact all of rock and roll good booty is also the very good name of the new book by Ann Powers good booty love and sex black and white body and soul in American music hello Ann thanks for coming on well, thank you so much for having me so I love Lil Richard he's a character uh, but I found out in your book, he didn't really write, I'm going to say flat out, he did not write Tutti Frutti, correct? Well, Tutti Frutti is a, a song that uh, was recreated, let's say, like so much of American music. Yeah. Um, it was recreated in a different context when Little Richard took it on with a young woman named Dorothy Labastri. They they rewrote the lyrics to a very dirty song that was often sung in nightclubs throughout the South, nightclubs where drag queens and various other characters would hold forth. And uh, the original song was quite explicit, as you said, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, really expressed what the song's about. But you know what, Mike? I think we know what that song's about, even if he doesn't flat out say it. Well, we know what a lot of Richard, Little Richard's uh, oeuvre was about, and he was such a, he was a character. He was also, I think maybe it's forgotten just how many hits he had and how unbelievably successful and important he was. He was, I think, Little Richard, you know, he was one of those rock and rollers who was drawn to both heaven and earth. <laughs> and his story, he kept going back to the church. So that's what interrupted his career trajectory. He would renounce rock and roll, go be a preacher for a while, then come back, you know, and that has sort of continued throughout his career. Many artists have that sort of inner conflict, although I argue in my book that they, they need to resolve that conflict because gospel music and rock and roll are basically the same thing, just different uh, objects of desire. Yeah, the old line, just change the word Jesus to baby and a 
rock song, <laughs> gospel songs becomes a rock song. But what about? That's li- true. So the whole book is about sexuality. But what about Lil, Little Richard's sexuality? He couldn't really be honest. He he. There were winks and nods and a little bit of a a, a black rock and roll Liberace thing going on with him. But he couldn't really Definitely. be honest with his sexuality for years and years. Well, if you read uh, his his biography, Little Richard, the Quasar of Love, which is really an autobiography. <laughs> I know. The best. Uh, he talks a lot about his predilections, his interests, and he really describes himself as a voyeur. So that's interesting that he came came out and said it right in the book. And he's sort of strangely open and not open at the same time. I think the thing is, the way we describe sexual identity is ever-evolving. And certainly in the 1950s to be a flamboyant, let's, let's say polymorphous, open hearted and 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 openly sensual mm, man yeah. uh, uh, that was a really hard thing you know and and it's not only with little richard i i think if you look at every rock star from that time uh there's a way in which they keep getting kind of shoved into a narrower box as they go on chuck chuck berry i mean we could go to elvis we could go to chuck berry i want to go to chuck berry no one no one's more important to american music than chuck berry and very sexual yeah well Chuck Berry is an interesting case artistically. He was somewhat older than most of the rock stars of that era, rock and roll stars of that era. He was a polymath musically, very influenced by country music, influenced by R&B performers like Louis Jordan, who performed very witty and and uh, and charming jump blues songs. So he had this sense of narrative in his songs that I think was really unusual. Chuck Berry had it all, and he really transcended genre, but because... I mean, because he was African-American, you know, many people wouldn't call him country, even though he was equally influenced by country as much as he was by anything else. Yes. And he served time in jail for sex. Uh, it was, you know, sex with an underage girl. But of course, he was also prosecuted and persecuted for interracial sex. And, you know, sex plays uh, a big role in his lyrics and a bigger role in his life. If you read his uh, autobiography, it seemed to be he had two things he cared about and one was sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other, however, was uh uplifting the African-American race. You know, let's not forget that Chuck Berry was all about presenting uh, images of African-American culture and society that were extremely proud in their nature. You know, think of brown-eyed handsome man, right? I mean, this guy really was about standing up for African-American dignity and pride. Oh my goodness, Mike, the the intersection of sex and race and power and the music industry, it's just endless can of worms. And I, I, I try to always talk about that in this book, like, it's endlessly complicated. You know, racism and oppression always factor in. Uh, at the same time, rock and roll created an environment and popular music creates an environment of openness that maybe sometimes lines were crossed that shouldn't have been crossed. Let's talk about Elvis Presley for a second. Elvis the pelvis, uh, obviously Ed Sullivan shooting him from the waist up, the kiss list. How knowingly sexual was he? He would go to the juke joints. He would essentially do imitations. He was great at it of a lot of the sexual black performers he saw. But how much did he know what he was playing with? Elvis is such a strange combination of utter innocence and utter knowingness at the same time. When I go back and watch those early performances now, I really can see the wink, you know? I can see the distance he has 
Elvis would have been completely happy, I think, had he gone on to strictly have a gospel music career. He could have sung Southern Gospel. He tried to join kind of the junior league version of a group called the Blackwood Brothers that he loved in Memphis, and he was rejected. Uh, Later, he became good friends with the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesmen, these quartets that he admired endlessly. So, you know, Elvis felt the rock and roll, but... He, he also felt the desire to be proper in a strange way. Everyone gives Jim Morrison credit. Uh, he sought it for being a, a sexual avatar. But are you may, I think, I sense you're making the case that Janis Joplin is at least a, very underappreciated, but maybe could be thought of as the female equivalent of uh, Jim Morrison? I mean, she was a pinup. You know, there was a famous poster of her in her hippie finery with her nipple exposed uh, that was on the walls of countless young people. And there is this one uh, legendary encounter that Janice and Jim had in a nightclub in New York. Jimi Hendrix was playing. Janice was supposedly in the audience. Morrison jumps on stage. He's completely drunk, as he was in all of his performances, and um, starts saying basically lewd remarks kind of directed toward Jimmy. And somehow they all ended up, I think Janice jumped up on stage and, and wrestled Jim to the ground and they all ended up in kind of a big heap. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we never, I, who knows? But that, that to me, there you go. That's the 60s right there. You wrote, where'd you write this book? Where, where physically? Where did I write it? Yeah, in, where'd you write In it? my office. Uh, I, well, I was, I started the project when I was living in Alabama. My husband, Eric Weisbart, teaches at University of Alabama, and I lived there for six years. Now I live in Music City, USA, Nashville, Tennessee. It was interesting to be in the South while working on this project, and that might be one reason why I fell into the very deep rabbit hole of New Orleans. The whole first chapter is about New Orleans in the 19th century, kind of setting up the story of music and sexuality as it relates to race, to slavery, to to African-Americans' pride and dignity that they carry on through music through that century. That was my supposition, that this book seems very shot through with if not country music, not country music, but Southernisms and all these uh, figures who were raised, you know, Pentecostal or in rural areas and used yes. music like America used music to kind of break free of those restrictions. And it also seems to me that as much as music was about the liberation, sexual liberation, all other sorts of liberation, without the repression, the music would have sounded a lot different. We need music, not only for our pleasure, but for our very survival. And and we also need music to speak with each other and communicate with each other and connect in ways that otherwise are not allowed. I mean, it, it, again, popular music has always been a force that has created these provisional spaces where people uh, across race lines, ethnic lines, class lines, gender lines could connect, sometimes intimately, and try to understand each other. If let's let's give a what if what if rock and roll weren't the sort of weren't the genre of music that was ascendant? I mean, it seems inevitable, but much of history does. I don't know. What if the Bobby Soxers really had their day or what if big band music took off in a way? Do you think the sexual revolution would have happened differently? Oh, my gosh. This is the endless argument that music critics have all the time. Uh, What made rock and roll rock and roll? Is it any different than blues or R&B or soul or gospel music? 
I don't know, but I, I know that rock and roll, it's a concept that, that puts forth the importance of, of youth, of rebellion, of freedom, of liberty, and those things are all endemic and essential to the sexual revolution. So I definitely think the music is key. So many things are key, though. I mean, LSD, you know, would there have been a sexual revolution without LSD? I'm not sure, you know, would there have been a sexual revolution without Nixon in a different way, you know, a repressive force to rebel against? I don't know. How do we take these things apart? They're so complicated. Is there sex in all of rock music? I'm thinking, I just read Dave Weigel's book about prog rock, and there is a genre <laughs> without too much good booty. But is it there oh, and I can't hear it? Poor prog rock. Poor <laughs> prog rock. Well, Mike, masturbation is a form of sex. Uh-huh. So, oh, so, think- that's your, so we have your take on prog rock down. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get slaughtered for that. Uh, I don't know. Prog, is prog sexy? I, I think we have to have a, a, a congressional panel on that. I'm not quite sure, but I, I think you could find some something in there. I, I need some, some kind of I need fantasies of the white to, witch or yeah, something. Right. Yeah. Right. The <laughs> the overlap with the uh, Lord of the Rings lyrics and and yeah. the Zeppelin lyrics. Maybe your time is going to come. And yeah. Do you think that now that we've reached a time where there really are no restrictions on lyrical content, uh, you can and do say whatever you want, does that inhibit the sexiness or is that just something that 40-year-olds tell each other? So I I started this book asking that question, like, like, can we go any farther? But what I found, of course, which is what you always find when you do these kinds of things, is that it's a cycle that, you know, the blues was as dirty as anything today. I do, however, think that the rise of the internet has changed the way people explore their sexuality, and that that's definitely affecting music as well. But I think it's made, I don't know, maybe it's made music a little, a little chillier. Maybe we don't, we have the cyborgian, you know, pop star of the day. To me, Rihanna, she's very sexy and she's like very earthy and I feel her commitment to sexuality. Let's say that. But there are other pop stars today that I just, I don't know, they feel a little Puritan to me. Ann Powers is the author. The name of the book is Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul. Thank you, Ann. It was a blast. I enjoyed it quite a bit. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Ah, the changing of seasons, the nip in the air, the winding down of baseball, the ramping up of football. Sports are here to give us sucker and distraction and on the rare occasion transcendence. As our national leaders are galumphing, our sportsmen are gallant. As national politics creak along in desultory fashion, the players on the field and their dutiful chroniclers on the airwaves soar. Or not. Uh, The Green Bay Packers are laying six and a half to the Chicago Bears in Chicago. That was WFAN morning host Craig Carton on a uh, show last year urging you to take the Packers. They didn't cover, by the way. Carton was arrested today for his involvement in a Ponzi scheme. He used this Ponzi scheme, uh, which dealt with the reselling of concert tickets to cover his gambling debts. It is alleged. If you listen to Carton, it's not hard to imagine that he had Big gambling debts. I'm taking the Cincinnati Bengals plus three at home Sunday at one o'clock. They lost by four. And just as the co-host of the top morning show in the biggest market on sports talk radio was being perp walked, so too was national yacker Ryan Rossillo. This from local Wyoming news reports. Quote, Rosillo walked into the bedroom with his pants half down. He was obviously intoxicated, and the only thing he had to say was that he was getting his stuff. Police found Ryan Rosillo, this is a couple weeks ago, lying on a bed in a condo bedroom naked. It wasn't his own bedroom. It wasn't his own condo. He had his pants around his ankles, according to an affidavit. Two days ago, Rosillo returned to the air and somewhat apologized. These incidents expose more than Ryan Rosillo's milky white backside. They expose the fissures in our athletic accountability matrix. For years, we had a deal. Sports stars would transgress. Older, smaller, weaker, less athletic men with access to microphones would bemoan. Athletes would beg forgiveness. Sports yackers would say, I'll be watching you. And everyone's ratings would be fine. But now, now we have a genuine sports ethical emergency in our midst and two of our high priests have been humiliated and weakened, if not entirely defrocked. Well, Rosillo was defrocked from the waist down. That is true. Have you heard? Have you heard about the scandal I'm talking about? The New York Yankees caught the Boston Red Sox in full cheat mode. They had been pilfering signals, not with the tried and true mixture of chaw, bubblegum, sunflower seeds, and guile, but with an iPhone watch. Or is it an iWatch? What do they call it? An iPhone watch or an iWatch? Why don't they just call it an iWatch? I guess that sounds like a monocle. Okay, it's an Apple Watch. They call it an Apple Watch. So here's how it usually goes in baseball. The catcher signals the pitcher. One finger means I want a fastball. Two fingers means I want a curveball, let's say. Now, if the other team's player happens to see these signs and decode these surreptitious signals, then he can signal to his own teammate, his own confederates at the plate, so they know what pitch is coming. 
And by the way, if you understand the demographics of baseball, those Confederates might literally be Confederates. Dixie Walker, Ty Cobb, the Georgia Peach, Enos Country Slaughter. But the point is that all the skullduggery must take place between the lines, on the diamond, or possibly via a Sergei Kislyak cutout and a back channel in the Russian embassy. That That is allowed to. This is the perfect scandal for this time. The stakes are really low. The transgression is more funny than serious. Fans of both teams are outraged. They're always outraged. That doesn't really matter. The commissioner said, and the Yankees manager basically agreed with him, come on, guys, just don't use an Apple Watch. But I want you to know, this is far from the first sign-stealing scandal in baseball. It is true. The New York Giants of Bobby Thompson's shot heard around the world. They were aided by lookouts in the outfield bleachers and scoreboard who used a buzzer that connected from the clubhouse to the bullpen and the dugout. One buzz meant fastball, two buzzes meant off-speed pitch. And that is why Russ Hodges' famous call of that home run sounded the way it did. Steal! Engage in flim-flammery to... Bamboozle their way to... Employ underhanded means to... Now that's the most famous case. But writing in the Sabre, the Society of Baseball Researchers History Guide, Joe Dittmar wrote about a cheating scandal from the turn of the century. Two turns ago, in fact. Pierce Childs, whose nickname was What's the Use? What's the Use, Childs? Standing there in the third base box at the old Philadelphia Phillies Stadium would be said to be doing an odd dance and no one could quite figure it out. But then, in the third inning of a game against the Cincinnati Redlegs, shortstop Tommy Corcoran of Cincinnati started scratching with his spikes in the third base coaching area. Let me read this to you. Acting like a giant demonic chicken searching for grain, Tommy raised the ire of the Philadelphia groundskeeper who raced to the scene and vociferously beated the Cincinnati captain for destroying his handiwork. But guess what surfaced? It was a box, an electronic buzzer device with protruding wires. Childs would be signaled from a cohort in the dugout. He would then arrange his legs in such a way and do a little dance, and the batter knew which pitch was coming. The umpire at the time dismissed the commotion, drawing a parallel, again, I'm reading from Joe Dittmar's writing, drawing a parallel with Admiral Dewey's bravery just two years earlier. This is the Battle of Manila. Quote, back to the mines, men. Think on that eventful day in July when Dewey went into Manila Bay, never giving a tinker's damn for all the mines concealed therein. Come on, play ball. This was from a time when baseball umpires used the word therein. Now, this wasn't it. There was, for instance, the time in 1871 when Lip Pike, then a member of the Troy Haymakers, through use of a daguerreotype and a telegraph, signaled to teammate Dickie Flowers that the Fort Wayne Kekiangas were attempting a double steal. However, due to the long exposure time of the daguerreotype, the signal was not received until two innings later. It still proved to be sufficient time to nab the slow-footed Wally Goldsmith pulling into third. Later, in the 1919 season, Art Neff, fresh from the Big War, and with experience in the Army Signal Corps, deployed Semaphore to signal his Giants teammate High Pockets Kelly about the incoming pitch. Unfortunately, Neff was trained in the British Board of Trade's commercial code, where High Pockets read only Portuguese shipping vessel maritime code, and when Neff signaled for a curved ball, Kelly interpreted that to mean an octopus attack. 
and he was called out for wetting himself in the batter's box. Advance to 1979, and there we have the Pittsburgh Pirates on their way to a pennant run. Frank Tavares partnered with a local Viewmaster dealer to quickly print out surveillance footage of opposing catchers. Players would subtly tuck the Viewmasters into their waistbands and sneak peeks in between adjusting their batting gloves and spitting. Did it work? It did. Except for the time when the devices were loaded with shots of Dave Parker's off-season scuba diving excursion in Grand Cayman. Cobra in a wetsuit, hello. Finally, even before this Apple Watch kerfuffle, there was a rumor that Giancarlo Stanton's torrid home run pace with the Miami Marlins can at least partially be explained by the bizarre presence of both him and his third base coach, Freddy Gonzalez, simultaneously donning Google Glass while playing in home games. Amateur codebreakers surmise that when Gonzalez blinks twice, it means fastball. When he blinks once, it means a $1.2 billion stadium soaking the local taxpayers. Well, that has been a jaunt through some of the recent history of major league sign stealing. Sadly, we have too fewer members of the media to unhypocritically shake their fists at the poor sportsmanship and bemoan the lack of innocence and decorum. Then they will go back to glancing at their Apple watches to find out point spreads and if the Portuguese shipping vessel app finally is available. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson was accused of stealing signs back in high school. Yield, stop, slow children playing. Dan Schrader, just producer, was also accused of being a sign stealer. He's a little younger than Mary. So by the time he got around to it, the slow children who were playing became slow men working. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is wondering if I've created a fictive universe where all the producers grow up in the same small town. Is this town created to produce producers? Or is it like San Pedro de Morqui, where all those major league shortstops come from? Open questions. The gist, we advise the Red Sox to admit they stole the sign, but to amend their admission with the caveat, life is demanding without understanding. And that excuses it all. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.